The theme for the afternoon talk is the three characteristics of existence. Try to explain what this means. But firstly, I would like to uh, try to make it as clear as possible that very much in the world of perception and inquiry and investigation, it lies, these three characteristics of existence lie at the very heart of the investigation. In other words, we cannot give, in a way, too much importance to it. So I wish to impress, in a way, upon us the importance of the exploration of these areas in order to free the being up into a liberated awareness and understanding. In order to, and I'll explain in a minute. So the first one, the Pali words are better than the English here, is anicca. Those of you who have had contact with the Buddhist tradition will know and will have heard again and again how important it is to see impermanence how vital it is to stay in touch with it, to be unusually clear, perceptive and wise. The literal, the literal word is anicca. Literally it means, and that's where the subtlety comes, not permanent. Quite often we, we human beings, easily fall into the generality and we would say, oh, life is impermanent. Yes. We would say, I am passing through different stages of life called birth, ageing, pain and death. Confirmation of impermanence. We can say with impermanence, I entered into something, a job, a relationship, uh, I travelled to a particular country and in that relationship, one could say, well, it wasn't permanent. It came, it stayed, and it went. So the entire field of experiences that you and I engage in are either impermanent, we clearly see at the beginning and the end to it, clearly notice it, as much as the candle flame is lit and the candle flame has gone out, or, and this is important, we see, we see uh, a Nietzsche through change. So a way that we were, whatever it may be in connection with, may be different, and at some subtle level probably will be, between how it was and how it is now. So a Nietzsche impermanence doesn't mean, as it were, a complete beginning and a complete end there, but it also includes change. So a person may be, take an obvious example, in a relationship, it is subject to change. They may, the, the relationship may start off beautifully, it may go into a change, a dip, and difficulties, that change may emerge again, and come into a more fulfilling relationship, it may change again, and it dissolves, etc., so, all of this movement is anicca. Is it impermanence? 
owing to its changing character. Even though the bare form, in the same way we might engage in sitting and walking and standing and reclining, we may engage in that for years, what's actually going on within the embrace of it is anicca, it is changing. Our states of mind, our thoughts, our wisdom, our understanding, our confusion, our clarity. So the teachings strongly emphasize this willingness to stay with change. The actuality from our experiences that you and I every day are exposed to a tremendous amount, tremendous, uncountable amount of impressions, eyes, ears, nose, tongue, touch. We couldn't count up the number of thoughts that we had. One advertisement said it was 13,174 per day. I don't know how they came to that number. I thought it was 13,200. But anyway, so the impressions that come to us, the practice and the function of finding a wisdom in life is to be able to address a Nietzsche either impermanence, it came and it finished, or change, it is evolving or changing in that way, in the areas clearly where we know there is vulnerability. Period. So out of the multiple impact of impressions upon us in the day, most of it doesn't touch us. We're quite used to living in all the varieties of change that go on, but some areas do affect us. Either because some change or impermanence arises, or because we want it to. We either see it's not changing and we want it to change, or it is changing and we don't want it to change. So any issue which is problematic in life will, to some degree, be revealed to us, problematic one, about our relationship to change. We either want it to change, or we don't want it to change. And if one can think of of a problem outside of that, praise the Lord. So, Dharma teachings and practices is to know ourselves well where the self is dependent for its peace of mind in an area of change because it's happening or one wants it to stay as it is, resistance to change. And sometimes we all know there may be possibly just a few areas it could be ageing popular one could be somebody that one's in a relationship is thinking of saying goodbye another popular one it could be um, not money, feeling one hasn't got money, enough money and then wanting more money and wanting it to change and that becomes another pressure etc the looking and the exploration interchange is especially important where one knows one can have a problem over it. If one knows one can have a problem over it, it shows that shows to us there isn't wisdom in this characteristic of existence.
That's all. That's all it shows. The tradition, because we're to liberate the being, not be trapped anywhere, has foolishly, I would, uh, would say, tended to take the view that impermanence or change or in some traditions moment to moment existence is how things really are change is the reality impermanence is the reality impermanence is the way things are it is a terribly problematic view because if that's how things really are we are stuck we've had it you might as well pack up and go home we're trapped in this impermanence we're trapped in it there no, could be no liberation if things are really impermanent and everything is impermanent so is truth and if truth is impermanent what's the truth and what's no truth if it's impermanent if reality is impermanent then what's the reality and what's no reality because it's impermanent if the limitless word I used the other day is impermanent then it's clearly very limited because it's impermanent etc so the perception of impermanence this is the position of the Buddha's language here is a characteristic which reveals itself there is no statement in the text which says impermanence is how things really are can't find that because if that's how things really are we've had it we're stuck because it would make truth, reality limitless all these things would have to be impermanent so we'd have to keep going from limitless to limited and terribly confusing there are some traditions we pass in our traditions bless them who will tell us we have to go with the power of concentration in meditation to a really deep, deep level of impermanence. And we are told, and it's a common voice in the Theravada world, that we have to penetrate deeper than the levels of our mind, touch a place of sensations in the body, that the sensations in the body store all the samkaras, the formations, the old karma, and then when we get to the really deep level in the body this will exhaust will burn out and anything which happens that's coming up there is no coming up of anything by the way it's only metaphor not possible only thank, something is only coming up for one who thinks they're up here it's a slight sign I'll get back to the point <laughs> that we are told and must penetrate into the body sensations there is everything is stored so to speak and then when anything comes up I have to keep going back to the body it's to exhaust it's a very common view and there, <coughs> therefore with the power of concentration one says the levels of my state of mind or my thought is inadequate I can't see through problems this way therefore I've got to get to a deeper level when I get into the body into the sensations into the 
collapses, subatomic particles, I can really purify myself and therefore bring about a very deep fundamental change. It's a nice idea. Nice idea. There's two or three serious problems with the view. It's a view. One of the, of the problems that goes with it is that which is giving attention to the body is not clean anyway. That which perceives carries its own history of the perceiver. And the perceiver has the view by going into the body, because that's what I've been told, and getting the sensations, I'll burn out all my samkaras, all my old karma. It's a common view. My body world that uses this one as well. Everything's in the body, we are told. Yeah. The second problem with this um, uh, view is, and this is what the Buddha addressed with this view, how, does, how much does one know one has actually exhausted? Who is the judge? So one may have been sitting on the cushion, observing body sensation, going deep levels with concentration and meditation to the body, as I'm working out my stuff, my old karma, and then when I've worked it all out, I'll be free, I'll be liberated, I'll be a jiva mukti, I'll come out of this old condition. But, a judge has to come in and make a measurement. And the measurement may say, well, I've done 20%, but I've got 80% to go. I've done, what was it, 86%, and I've got 14% to go. Or I've got, I've hardly started, I've got so much stuff inside of me because it goes back thousands of lifetimes. And I've only been practicing for 30 years. <laughs> so I've got a long way to go to exhaust all this stuff that I've accumulated in many karmas, and if I, even if I don't believe that, I've just got this life. And think of all the things I've had to go through in this life, work that lot out, my God, etc. And the view of the judge can keep changing. One has a good meditation, and one says, God, I haven't got so much left to go now. <laughs> the end is in sight. I'm really getting deep into the body, the samadhi is great, I'm burning all this old stuff up. It must be nearly finished. Two more sits and it'll be over. <laughs> and then one comes in for the next sitting thinking that one's now 96% of the way and it's just one more sitting to be out with. And then one has a horrible meditation. Nothing goes right and the person beneath you is blowing their nose every two minutes and it's completely ruining one's chance for enlightenment. <laughs> And the view is then suddenly changed again. And the view is, God, I'm not getting anywhere. God, and, you know, I've probably got 110% to work out. <laughs> All based on the perception and the view. The Buddha, when told this view, when one of the sadhus, one of the yogis, the Buddha said to him, what are you doing? He said, I'm keeping totally still. By keeping totally still, he said, I am not making any new karma and I am burning out all my old samskaras, all my old karma. And the Buddha said, straightforwardly, this is, quote unquote, 
Useless effort and useless striving. Poh. <laughs> we pass in our world seems to have forgotten that statement of the Buddha. <laughs> the third problem with the view, with the view, is there is a word in the Pali language for kalapas, for subatomic particles. There's no doubt that in deep meditation, and some of us have had the privilege of very deep meditations, know we can get deeper than the framework of the states of mind, deeper than the feeling and emotional life that's, as it were, beneath it, deeper to the point where the clarity of the concentration is having access to genuinely subatomic particles. And in that, the refinement and the skill in access to that takes us temporarily through the power of meditation outside of the story, outside of all the mental constructions, deeper than the thought, and touching these subatomic particles there in a very refined, um, subtle, moment-to-moment event. It's a wonderful experience. And the word for this is kalapas. The Buddha gave 5,000 discourses in the Sutta Pitika. The word kalapa does not appear once. Once. If it was so profoundly important from the maestro of meditation, Gautama, and then he forgot to mention it. Oh dear. So clearly, he is not placing, since all we pass in our tradition says our authority comes from experience first and the text second, and a close second. Since we're all drawing on this statements of the, of, of the Buddha, it means that the Buddha is not giving great priority to the power of concentration to reach subatomic particles as a means for liberation. Because if it was there, it would be stated unambiguously. It isn't. You can't find it in the text. Yet the the descriptions of samadhi, the descriptions of meditation, the descriptions of subtlety are are, are extraordinary. Extraordinary. So if that's the case, then that awareness and that exploration and that profound interest in change is vital and the second characteristic which um, accompanies it is one, there's something unsatisfactory about it. Sometimes it's very satisfactory. You know, one wants some change to take place, one's sick, and one gets healthy. One's alone and one finds a lover. One, what are the other things that we get? um, uh, um, One has a lousy mind state and now one feels happy. happy. One's um, finally out of the western prison and one is on the road in India, etc. So there are plenty of... I didn't quite mean a Western prison. Well, actually, I did, actually. Um, So, there is an appreciation, at times, for change. The unsatisfactory element about it is, what is satisfactory easily, and sometimes quickly, becomes very unsatisfactory. It's a du- in Dharma language, it's a dualism, a duality. Therefore, dukkha 
is not only unsatisfactoriness, but even satisfactoriness. Because it hangs on the condition of change, or not change. And it's not the way things really are in their true nature. It is a characteristic of existence in which change reveals itself as a characteristic there's something unsatisfactory about it. The very fact I can't control it. I can't come to a moment and say, wow, this moment is perfect. I think I'll keep it. <laughs> I'll stop all progress, all becoming, all evolution, all movement. I'm just going to stop because it's such a good moment. I'm not going to let it go. It's gonna, I'm going to keep it. I'm going to carry it around with me. All the, everywhere. <laughs> hope. Not a chance, not even the sweetest of experience is ultimately satisfactory because it will go, as we all know. So this characteristic, not the true nature of things, but this characteristic, the way the world shows itself in its conventionalities, is one of constant dynamic of change sometimes satisfactory, sometimes unsatisfactory, and we're moving in and through all of this. It's valuable to see of itself as our practice in meditation, in our regularities of change, and it's valuable to see for one reason, not because it reveals the true nature of things that it cannot do, simply because it's the most persuasive Statement for letting go. That's all. It's not, not a statement about how things relate. It's an encouragement to have enough insight so that we're not clinging on to the changeable, not clinging on to the idea I don't want things to change, and we begin to see this, as it were, unfoldment is going on with non-clinging with non-clinging, to maybe have a little sense somewhere else. Let's see if I can um, find this um, piece. So, the conventional, that means how things appear to you and I as women and men on the uh, earth, is really taking a real interest in. To repeat myself a little bit earlier, to know ourselves is to know the areas where we have difficulty with change and not change. To see what that is. And if it is difficult for us, then we pasana, meaning insight, or inquiry, or exploration, or sharing, is a vehicle, or silence, or calmness of being, is a vehicle to enable us to be able to see and even though the event may go on just as it was, it's seeing and the problem has gone out of it. Health may have gone. Life may be going past. The person may have left us. The, the, the item which we had is lost and it's now gone, or whatever. But if we've explored and sensed all of this world of change and impermanence and coming and going well, you see in the unsatisfactoriness of it, clearly, clearly, it's freeing us from the clinging to. 
The seeing is the freeing from the clinging to. So, in this, um, I'm calling it a memoir, what else is that? And as I mentioned in the introduction, which um, Rachel and I were talking about today, it's mildly ironic that, it is ironic, it's not mildly, <laughs> that a teacher of non-self is writing a book about himself. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Embarrassing. This wasn't the reason why since 1977, when I got back home, that I've been avoiding writing this memoir. It's just that, uh, um, I, as I mentioned it a while ago, when I um, got back, my, for those of you who've been on the road for you know, a longer length of time, so I left in 67, April 67, got home in uh, May 77, and so in this 10-year, ten 10-day ten period, I was a rather, I may say, dutifully good son in that I would send to my mother um, the, um, uh, an aerogram, as we used in those days, about uh, every 10 days. Never, never ever made a single phone call. Actually, my parents didn't ever phone in those years. And it would send an aerogram every 10 days to her. My mother especially would write, when are you coming home? When are you coming home? It was a mantra for ten years. <laughs> and uh, she got so fed up with asking that she would just write at the end of each letter P.S. Then she put when would be W, R would be A, and Y, and C-H. Because she's uh, there. So I said, it won't be long. And um, <laughs> so, bless her, she kept all the letters that I sent they were all together, there were around 400 of them. And Vinici had a rubber band and kept all these 400 letters. Of course, you know, I, I'm the son, I wrote them. They were all totally censored by myself. If I had written what I would like to have written, if I'd been really, she would have been shock horror, etc., etc. You know, I'm a product of the hippie life, you know. Love, peace and harmony... <laughs> you know, you get, you get the point. <laughs> you know, look, when I was in my 20s, we had our triple gem as well, you know. And, you know and the Buddhists have got theirs, Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. The triple gem of my generation was sex, drugs and rock and roll. And as you can see, they're all still active anyway. Not, uh, anyway, I'll leave it Rock and roll. <laughs> yeah. Oh dear, oh dear. I, I think I might stop this recording. <laughs> the, 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 the evidence might be used against me. I've already got myself into hot water once or twice already with the, uh, the dear authorities. All right. Let me see if I can find. <laughs> so, basically, the thread and the theme of the book, that the, the intention, always important here, the intention is, I did this, I did that, yawn, yawn. But more importantly than uh, the description is that sometimes in a small 
uh, event, uh, experience, there's some insight and some understanding which emerges out of it. And I have endeavoured, by using the small story, to uh, communicate something which touched me and was rather important for me at the time. And it's a sequence of stories with some insights. That's the general thread running through the 10-year period. So I'd just like to take one, and it's not very much, 1,400, 1,500 words, two or three pages of an A4. And in this, I was in the monastery, and it was a Vipassana monastery, a rather strict Vipassana monastery, no reading allowed. Meditation to be done outdoors as much as possible, so the teacher could see that we were actually meditating and not in the horizontal posture, uh, <laughs> sleeping, which I know nobody there would dream of doing. And, and, and the day was very much in the form of sit, walking, standing and reclining. So I'm just speaking here about a standing meditation and it's just the, uh, the start of the monsoon. So let me read to you if I uh, may not get the sense, maybe. I didn't have to look up at the sky. I could feel a change coming on. There was a mild pressure on the body. There was a clamour in the air that took the colour out of the sky. The sandy bed of the monastery, the green of the trees and the sky all seemed to diminish in colour and size as the rainstorm approached. There was a looming darkness in the air as if the day was ending early. A quietness settled in the monastery beyond the normal silence so familiar in the daily cycle. One or two monks were sitting silently under trees. Others walked up and down in their favoured spots beside their huts. Novices were brushing the leaves off the floor and then scooping them up with their hands into the wooden barrel. The first drops of rain fell, slowly at first with noticeable gaps. Huge tumbling drops, not the normal rain that spits and feels pleasant on the skin. Sitting monks quietly picked up their square piece of red cloth from under them and made their way purposefully but without haste to their huts. Walking monks walked more deliberately up the steps to their balcony as the rain began to fall faster. Novices giggled, ran across the compound uh, as the rain got even faster. A sound took over. The beat of drops of rain as they sped to the earth hit a leaf or a tin roof. I was alone outside, standing beneath the tree. It's a case of the Lone Ranger, I smiled to myself. Then the heavens broke open, as if finally announcing the monsoon season. A vast flash of lightning followed by a burst of thunder. A few hut doors quietly opened and the monks peered out to admire Mother Nature. Rain beat down upon the leaves of the trees and the earth. This is reckless. I caught myself thinking. The last place to stand is under a tree. What have I got to prove? But I kept to my decision. I remained as if rooted. Walk to your hut to stay dry, said a sensible voice. Stay still, stay where you are, said the voice of the rebel, with a cause against conformity, just for the hell of it. The patchwork made by the raindrops were well joined together, my robes were becoming increasingly wetter and heavier, wrapping themselves closer to my body, like an unpleasant close embrace. Rain ran off the branches and leaves onto me. 
Round my feet, the cold, sorry, the ground became softer. A wind blew up, chilling the initial warmth in the air. I felt cold to the bone. Inside my hut, only a few meters away, hung a dry yellow towel and my spare set of robes. I could quit this standing meditation and retreat, mindfully and sensibly, of course, to my hut. How far would I push the edges of what was sensible? After what felt like about an hour of the designated three-hour period of standing, I was cold, soaked and chilled. I could not find a single valid reason to stay put other than a refusal to let the weather determine my actions. Was this intransigence, stubbornness, um, rather than a moment-to-moment meeting with the elements, a reason to stay put? I did not want to give in to the elements by returning to my hut. This seemed a more relaxed way of perceiving events and simply being bloody-minded. Either that, or I was mad, or virtually mad. I knew that whether I stood or didn't stand made no difference to anything. The other monks, I mused, would keep their thoughts to themselves, although the nuns may discuss the eccentric practices of the Englishman. Even though my eyes were closed 98% of the time, I could feel them looking at my solitary presence out there in the bucketing rain. Did they wonder if I was trying to impress them? Show how tough the farang, the foreigner, is in facing up to the elements. I didn't want the monks to think that I was on an ego trip. <laughs> Heaven forbid. But I, couldn't, but I couldn't stop them from thinking that. I couldn't stop them from thinking anything. What did I want them to think? That I was a dedicated man of practice? Standing under a tree in the middle of a tropical rainstorm didn't prove that. It didn't prove anything at all. But it may give a view for others about myself and a view about myself. So here I am, a fluctuating, complex and indeterminate creature standing in the rain. I I think I have some special reality that I am able to make independent choices and able to have a life of my own. Meditation challenged these perceptions. I am nothing more than a point of view while standing in the rain. As the minutes under the tree went by, I could let go of these discursive thoughts, or rather they had let go of me. I couldn't come up with a single reason to stand there, nor a single reason to leave there. Cold and wet did not feel like a good enough reason. The wait for the three o'clock gong seemed to stretch out longer and longer. My feet were now immersed in one of the puddles of water. The air I breathed in in order to retain the air deeply, in order to retain the air in the body to drum up some extra warmth. Occasionally I opened my eyes, moved the neck and parts of the body while keeping the feet still. Out of the corner of my eye I saw a snake weaving its way across the grounds of the monastery at remarkable speed, only to disappear into some planks kept under one of the huts. Even a snake opts for a dry, safe spot. A single word came out of the recesses of my mind, obstinacy. Since childhood I'd heard this word used as a description of myself. Well, it gives me something to reflect on. The three o'clock gong rang. 
I put my hand down to the front of my ankle to lift my heel up to the back side to stretch the knee and the thigh muscles. I did the same stretch with my left foot. I felt the elements of the body and the elements of the nature were inseparably related. There was nothing to fear, nothing to get worked up about. The foot of the tree and my body shared together the same pool of water the same rain poured down on the upright tree and the upright monk. Despite the discomfort, I felt a glow of satisfaction within that the human being and nature around participated in a single element together, expressing and manifesting in different ways. The downpour subsided. More light arrived. The green leaves looked brighter. I bowed to the tree. Wet, bedraggled and, and exultant, I walked back to my hut to change my robes. I never found out what the monks thought of my daily three-hour meditations. A junior monk once told me that one or two of the old monks had referred to my standing in the monsoon. That one old monk commented to another, I was either a young man of strong determination or a frog in my last life. <laughs> Three characteristics of existence the impermanence and the unsatisfactoriness, and in seeing how changeable, vulnerable, uncertain, insecure events are because of change, sometimes it would appear in our hands, sometimes not in our hands, sometimes we're not sure, and in a way that keeps confirming anatta. So anicca, change, impermanence, dukkha, unsatisfactory, backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards it goes, and anatta, not self. In other words, it's all extraordinarily impersonal, not self. There's a process of events which are just arising. And how easy the interest of the so-called self, we had it in the inquiry group this morning, in uh, one person was asking do we create our own problems it's as if or do other selves create them for us we tend easily to give power to the self power to the I we say oh I create my other problem my own problems or others create them for me or whatever but in the emergence of events whatever the experience of the state of mind is that as it were, the I arises with it. Or as Ajahn Buddhadasa constantly reminded me, I, he would say, more, more deeply, I is not I. <laughs> I is just I. <coughs> I is not I. I is just I. And therefore the I is not a creator. It's not a god. The eye just emerges in the event of the impersonal nature of what's unfolding. If the eye was the creator, if it was the creator, as exploring with your group, some of you in the group today, then it would, we would never create unhappiness. We'd never create misery for ourselves. 
and fear and worry and anxiety and depression. If the uh, I is a creator, then we would wake up in the morning and say, well, today and this morning I'm going to create great happiness. And then this afternoon I think I'll create a great deep meditation. And then in the evening I'll create some great joy. And then I'll create a few insights before I go to bed. <laughs> and then I'll change it tomorrow and have something else. Have maybe an ecstasy in the morning and uh, not the tablet, of course. And um, so the eye is an event which happens. So the I and the event is not I. I is not I. Anicca, dukkha, anatta. Sometimes, and some wish to communicate that with regard to the sharing of the experience with you in the, under the tree, the wish or the will or whatever that's going on within, I want to be safe. I want to be comfortable or whatever. And then the heart, mind and body and all that moving in that direction, which would seem the sensible thing to do, having weathered a little bit the mind's unsureness or its obstinacy or whatever, that, with the self that goes with it, begins to drop away, which gives some natural access to something else the tree and the upright tree and the upright monk sharing the same event. It's then out of the story of the struggle of the self with the event, the event is total. The rain falls equally on both. It's a total event. It's not a fragmented one between the monk and the, and the monsoon. And sometimes this gives a glimmer an intimation of something which is not in the characteristics. Something not of those characteristics. So the characteristics of impermanence, not concerned with. Characteristic of dukkha and satisfactoriness, which always relate to I, me and my, not concerned with. We only need, there is only the need for enough seeing clearly, not I am seeing, just enough seeing clearly so that we don't feel completely embroiled or caught up in and lost in constantly seeing change, constantly seeing the unsatisfactoriness and constantly trying to see um, uh, non-self. Sometimes that interest there is enough understanding not to be concerned with it. As the Buddha said, one turns one's attention to something greater than that. And when the personal self or the personal story drops away, there is a receptivity about something else which is, this <coughs> I refer to, as one element with no characteristics to it. And therefore, not subject to impermanence, not subject to dukkha, and not subject to issues of self or not self. All that belongs in the relative. And it has no characteristics. That which is characteristic must come and go. And sometimes the raindrops falling from the heavens communicate something greater than itself. Monk standing in the puddle, the tree in the ground, it's communicating, it's speaking, it's 
intimating something greater than itself. Itself is characteristics. Impermanent, unsatisfactory and non-self. It's characteristic. Look deeper. Reveal something else that all, all things share, which is unshakable, not subject to change, not subject to unsatisfactoriness, and not subject to issues of self. And then this is the liberating element, right in the midst of it. May your being live with awareness. May all beings see deeply into things. May all beings realize the unshakable truth of things. So let's have a couple of quiet minutes, shall we?